You can't have a conversation about historical architecture without referencing Stamford White. He was one of the most prominent architects of the Gilded Age. White was a partner in the firm McKim, Mead & White, which built some of the most iconic institutional and domestic buildings of the early 20th century. I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. White's great-grandson, Samuel G. White, is out with a new book about Stanford's work. It's called Stanford White in Detail. Samuel is our guest on this edition of Cityscape. Sam, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. You're entirely welcome, and good morning to you. So this is not your first book on your great-grandfather's work, but what makes this one different? Uh, well, the earlier books talked about specific projects and uh, were organized principally by project type, houses or <clears throat> the institutional or commercial work. Uh, this project, this book rather, um, looks not at that lens, but it looks at it through the uh, kind of the microscope of the de details that make the work so interesting and so alive. And so we don't organize it by houses or, or commercial projects. We just have it organized by details and really details that were uh, developed over the span of his career. So <clears throat> the book does look at the very early houses or the details in the early houses, and it looks at the details in the later work. The photography in this book is absolutely stunning. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the photographer? John Wallen was the photographer at a, uh, at a kind of a geek photography level. He, uh, we started this project 20 years ago when we were working with film. And so he would take four by five shots of the entire building. And then he had a Hasselblad that uh, you took two by two shots and he would take the most wonderful pictures with this Hasselblad. He'd get right up close to the details and, uh, and they were delicious. I mean, he was a genius with the Hasselblad camera. So sorry that, that the uh, uh, digital has uh, replaced that discipline. Now, Stanford White had no formal architectural training. So how did he learn the craft? Uh, Stanford White uh, was apprenticed to Henry Hobson Richardson, who was the really greatest American architect of the 19th century. Uh, and uh, White was about 19 years old. He had wanted to be a painter. His um, friend's father's friend, John Lafarge, the painter, had told him that, that being a painter was going to be a really tough road to hoe in terms of supporting himself and encouraged White to be an architect instead. And so uh, Stanford White's father, who knew just about everybody in New York at the time, uh, was able to arrange this internship, I think through Frederick Law Olmsted. Uh, White worked for Richardson for six years, and that is how he learned to be an architect. What was especially unique about how he used ornament in his architecture? There's three things about it. Uh, one is uh, the density with which he used the ornament. I mean, I don't think any architect I could name was able to uh, apply ornament in such density uh, to his designs and still uh, maintain a kind of coherence of the design. I mean, it's a little like leading a thousand piece orchestra and still making uh, coherent music. Uh, the next thing is that his sources were um, all over the place. I mean, he would <clears throat> take, uh, identify uh, things that had been in Japanese architecture. He would identify things that had been in Italian Renaissance architecture. Uh, he would identify things that had been in American colonial uh, homes in Salem, Massachusetts, and he would uh, combine them and use them together. And then I think the third aspect of his use of ornament was that uh, he wasn't wedded to any one thing. He just, he moved all over the place with his ornament. 
that sort of leads me into my next question, which is where did Stanford White find inspiration for his designs? You already alluded to some of that. I'd, I'd say that it was a combination of what I would call memory and imagination. I mean, he had a, an amazing memory for things that he had seen uh, and would pull them out 20 years later and use them. Uh, but at the same time, he was willing to uh, create juxtapositions to put two things together that had not normally been thought of as going together and uh, creating a kind of a decorative motif out of that. You mentioned in the book that he was also inspired by animals and plants, right? Uh, yes, particularly in, the, in his earlier work, um, where the what are now called the shingle style houses, where they were just inventing it practically every step of the way. And uh, he would uh, look at animals and plants and take those elements uh, and incorporate them into his architecture. I mean, some dragons as, uh, as brackets supporting a porch or um, a spider web uh, abstracted in the form of uh, sort of metal strips uh, enlivening a, a balcony rail. You also say that White had a taste for the bizarre. Now, how does that reflect in his work? I, I think that's similarly in the earlier work uh, where he's inventing things. Uh, he would introduce these uh, sort of strange things, the spider web or the, uh, the dragon, uh, the, uh, or the, the peacock. I mean, he loved peacocks and would incorporate them into wallpaper or mosaics. Uh, and uh, so he, as his work developed or really as his clients and as the taste of the American upper middle class developed, uh, I think there was less tolerance on the part of his clients for that kind of uh, exploration. When you look at White's portfolio of work, what do you find most interesting about how it evolved over the course of his career? Uh, what I find most interesting is that he didn't, he didn't sort of run out of gas. He, um, uh, it just, it keeps getting better and better. In the early work, uh, it's very inventive because they're uh, working, they're sort of creating a, uh, an architectural vocabulary that hadn't existed before, that what is now uh, referred to as, I say, the shingle style. But his later work, in which he's working in a more, uh, somewhat more academic, uh, classical idiom, he still uh, is bringing the imagination to play and still bringing that same animation to play. He didn't, uh, he didn't get tired. Did he travel much to find inspiration? Well, he traveled to Europe a lot. I mean, the, the firm had three partners and they had a, an idea of uh, the, 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 Europe, the European partner. Sort of every summer, one of the partners would be in Europe. And White was going to Europe a lot uh, to, do, to buy for his clients. He was, in addition to designing their houses, he was also furnishing them and giving them uh, these wonderful tapestries or ceilings or just amazing elements that he would buy. In Europe. So to that extent, he traveled a lot to, um, for shopping expeditions. Uh, he didn't have much time to travel for what today we would refer to as pure pleasure. Uh, he would go to Canada to fish. Uh, the Aroostagoosh Fishing Club was something that he really depended on to find some relaxation simply because uh, he was working so hard all the time. He was quite the collector himself, right? He was. Uh, he had a, he would he would buy these things and he would, uh, I think he would buy them for selling to his clients. He had a sort of a stock and uh, uh, when his clients, he, he would keep uh, records. For, for example, there's a 
draw their drawings showing um, these little sketches of mantelpieces and little sketches of, of columns. And, uh, and, and if somebody bought one of the mantelpieces, he'd just draw a line through it because that now was in so-and-so's house. Um, so he was principally collecting for resale, but he also collected for his own houses. What else can you tell me about the materials that he used in his work? He certainly had a taste for expensive materials when the clients were willing to pay for it. Um, the Henry Villard house uh, is the hallways are covered with uh, the Siena marble, which I think was extremely expensive marble. Um, when he was working for himself, uh, he tended to uh, use more imagination than, uh, than capital. Uh, and so in his own houses, his house in the country, uh, he covered the walls with bamboo or, or, or uh, uh, basically a woven uh, reed uh, or this very inexpensive wallpaper. Um, but uh, uh, when he was working for clients, it would be marble and tapestries and Renaissance ceilings. Let's talk more specifically about the properties that you have just mentioned. You mentioned Stanford White's own properties. Let's talk about his summer house on Long Island, Box Hill. What is especially special about that home? First of all, unique about it is that he was working for himself. I mean, the architect in this case was his own client um, or the other way around. And uh, so that's, and so he was, he didn't have to please anybody. He had to only please himself. And um, because he had this extraordinary imagination, uh, he could uh, create effects using materials that were so inexpensive that some of his clients might not have thought they were worth uh, their time. I mean, so uh, in the front hall in Box Hill, the walls are covered with uh, split bamboo, which uh, I mean, must have been a very inexpensive material, but uh, great living room, the walls are covered with uh, what are called Phragmites, which is a weed that grows uh, in the brackish water. Um, and uh, in the dining room, the walls are covered with a material called anaglypta, which is uh, just pressed paper to look like paneling. Um, so it has this sort of extraordinary imagination. Uh, and it, um, it also, uh, he was able to uh, create sort of incredible effects uh, because they say he was just designing to please himself. Um, and I think one of them was the exterior of the house where uh, after he had finished expanding the house, which he did in the course of two major campaigns, uh, it was still a clabbered house that was paid, painted mustard. Um, and, um, uh, and he uh, covered the whole walls of the house with, um, uh, with pebble dash. I mean, this um, more wet mortar that has uh, beach pebbles stuck into it. I mean, very, very unusual material. Uh, and he only did that for, I think, two other clients. Uh, and less successfully than he did it for himself. How did White approach his exterior work compared to his interior work, would you say? Um, well, I think there's a difference between interior and exterior and architecture in that when you're doing the outside of a house, it's the outside of a house is really like a contract. You have to, you say, this is going to be in the, you know, the Italian Renaissance style, or this is going to be in the uh, French Renaissance style, or they strictly, you know, based on uh, the uh, Grand Trianon Versailles or something like that. And then once you sort of set that 
basic rule, then you really have to stick to that rule uh, with very few exceptions as you go around the house. Uh, inside, you have much greater freedom. You can have a, a dining room that is in uh, the French style. You can have a, um, a living room that is in uh, more of an Italian style. You can have a uh, front hall that is very much American colonial. You, don't, you, can, you can mix uh, idioms on an interior in a way that you really can't do it on the exterior. Um, Box Hill is owned by my brother, Daniel White. It's the now, um, the, uh, it's still in the family. And when my grandchildren go there, it's they are the seventh generation of my family to enjoy that house. It's really a remarkable thing just from that perspective alone. Uh, but it's a, it's a wonderful house because it is, uh, it is relatively idiosyncratic uh, and, uh, and relatively intact. How many homes did Stanford White own and design himself? Stanford White had two houses. Uh, he had Box Hill, which was actually owned by Bessie, his wife, who had inherited some money. Uh, and, uh, and then he had a house in New York at, uh, that is now uh, where the Gramercy Park Hotel is at the corner of 21st Street and Lexington Avenue. Uh, he did not own that house. He rented it from one of his clients, Henry A.C. Taylor. Uh, and uh, Stanford White really went first class on the interior of that house. I mean, it was just amazing what he did there. Well, while out at Box Hill, he was using um, split bamboo and, and, uh, and shoreline weeds to uh, decorate the house in a wonderful way. Uh, on Gramercy Park, he was using uh, Italian Renaissance ceilings, uh, marble columns, and, uh, and the like. It just had to... It had extraordinary interiors. How frequently did White collaborate with other artists? White was a frequent collaborator with other artists. And uh, in fact, when he died, uh, one of the, his artist friends said that, um, that when an artist was working with White, uh, it was half the battle, that he was just extremely sympathetic to what artists were trying to achieve. Um, so he, his early work, uh, earliest collaboration, uh, one of them would be with uh, the, uh, called the Associated Artists, the group run by Louis Comfort Tiffany, um, and he would uh, continue to work with Tiffany throughout his career, but I would say that his best collaborations were those that he did with uh, Augustus St. Gaudens, who was a very close friend of his, and uh, White and St. Gaudens would work together um, St. Gordon's would do the sculpture and White would do the setting. And White's settings always sort of had a kind of a voice of their own. They were trying to say something that would reinforce what St. Gordon's was saying, but they weren't just kind of holding up the piece of sculpture. They were really addressing the observer and, uh, and engaging the observer. Uh, those, I would say, would be the most successful of his collaborations. What's an example of that collaboration between those two? Well, the first is the uh, Farragut Monument in Madison Square, where uh, uh, St. Gaudens does the statue of David Glasgow Farragut, who was the uh, admiral in the Civil War, who said, damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead, in the, I think it was the Battle of uh, Memphis. And, uh, and uh, White did the base. And this, just as the statue has really changed the course of American sculpture uh, by its um, uh, sort of capturing a psychological instant. Uh, the base really changed the 
well, it didn't change the course of American sculpture because nobody ever did anything like it again. But uh, this base just uh, engages the observer. It's really worth going to see. It's at the north end of uh, Madison Square. And this wonderful base just is, uh, has a built-in seat. It's just inviting you to come and sit down at the, sort of at the feet of the great war hero. Um, so that was, that was one of his most successful. I think uh, there's a one in Rock Creek Cemetery in, uh, in Washington, D.C., where the uh, commission was for uh, Clover Adams, who was the wife of Henry Adams, who wrote uh, The Education of Henry Adams. And Clover Adams uh, basically killed herself by drinking poison. And Henry Adams commissioned St. Gaudens to do a piece, which is a very mysterious piece. And, White created this, again, bench. He was very fond of this uh, outdoor bench called an Exedra. Uh, and he created this bench that, that puts you in, kind of forces you or locks you into this very tight communication with uh, the St. Gordon's statue and uh, really forces you to think. There's no escaping once you're in that space, uh, no escaping thinking about what St. Gordon's is trying to say. Earlier, you referenced Villard. What more can you tell us about the Villard houses on Madison Avenue featured in this book? Well, they were amazing. They were sort of the, they, you know, an architect's dream, a client who was willing to uh, say yes to any suggestion that had come up. Um, at the sort of general planning level, uh, they are important because they represent the shift in McKinney and White's work from the uh, Richardsonian uh, uh, French Renaissance uh, Romanesque uh, uh, idiom to a um, uh, to a more classical Italian Renaissance idiom. So they're important in that respect. But then uh, once you get inside, um, White, in this case, collaborated with a man named Joseph Morrill Wells, who was the chief designer in the drafting room at McKinney and White. And uh, they just scooped up ice cream like you had like there was no tomorrow. I mean, they just came up with the most beautiful details for doors, for mosaics, for fireplaces, for staircases, for balusters, for capitals. I mean, every single element in that house shows these two brilliant designers just kind of daring each other uh, to go higher and higher. What about the Payne Whitney house on Fifth Avenue? A wonderful house. You know, that was a wedding present from uh, Payne Whitney's uncle, Oliver Payne, who uh, is basically gave the young couple a blank check and told them to hire Stanford White and build themselves a nice house. And I'd say Stanford White took the blank check extremely seriously and uh, just went to town on this house with uh, the most extraordinary, well, the exterior is car is granite, which is not a easy material to work with, uh, with wonderful bas-relief carvings in it. Uh, and then the interior has the most wonderful spaces of which the one of them called the Venetian Room is just this uh, sort of triumph of the imagination. It's a mirrored gilded room that seems to be uh, sort of occupy a space somewhere between the world of architecture and the world of furniture. You can't quite tell. There are mirrors and gold leaf and, and the whole thing sort of dissolves as you're in it. How long would he typically spend on a single project and was he multitasking many? It would take a take about two or three years to, um, to do this. He was very, very busy. And so he would have a number of projects going on at once. Uh, but uh, some of these projects would go for two or three and sometimes even longer uh, just in the, the finishing up, the 
that design would go relatively quickly, uh, construction went relatively quickly because they didn't have the mechanical systems and electrical systems that we have to deal with today. Um, but then uh, the finishing, the, the plaster work, the, uh, the ceilings imported from you know, the chateau in France, the, uh, the, all the furnishings, those would, uh, those constituted a set of a long tail sometimes in these projects. Another project you focus on in this book is the library of the veterans rooms at the Park Avenue Armory. Well, there are two rooms at the Park Avenue Armory, the, the, the main veterans room, and then there's the library. Um, both of them were collaborations with Louis Comfort Tiffany and the associated artists. The um, veterans room, which my firm was able to uh, complete the restoration of a couple of years ago, uh, is this really defines the concept of visual overload. I mean, here again was a group of very bright young artists who were uh, inventing a vocabulary uh, for an interior. It's, un it's a, uh, unlike anything you've ever seen before, and it's considered to be one of the greatest uh, aesthetic period rooms in America. Um, the library, which is immediately next door to it, is more Stanford White and less Louis Comfort Tiffany. Uh, and here White is sort of working on uh, a vocabulary that he would then go and use uh, in other projects. The uh, ceiling with its, uh, its uh, coved ceiling uh, that is cast in plaster to replicate woven, it's a basket weave. Uh, the uh, walls have uh, metal uh, rivets sort of driven into wood paneling to create these sunbursts, uh, sort of studded sunbursts. Uh, and uh, the uh, fireplace is a, a marble fireplace that he uh, designed there and then would use again uh, a year later in a house in Pennsylvania. So uh, one is, I'd say that the veterans room itself is a great collaboration and the library is a, an early design of Stanford White. Did he largely only work on the East Coast? Yes. There is one house in uh, California that he did for an actress, Helen Mojeska, I think her name is. And, but I'm convinced that that was, he, I mean, he mailed that one in. That was, he never went out that far. He went to the West uh, to visit his brother in New Mexico uh, early on in his career. Uh, but he principally stayed in New York, in Boston, in Newport, uh, and up and down the Hudson, a little bit in Philadelphia, a little bit in Washington, D.C. Did he have his own particular vision or thoughts about what he wanted to accomplish in New York itself? Well, I think he really did have a sense that New York, which was a pretty ugly town when he started to work, uh, needed uh, sort of generous helpings of uh, sort of Mediterranean architecture to bring it to life. I think that was his vision. Uh, it was a uh, vision that he shared with his partners. Um, but I think that they, in addition to a sort of a stylistic uh, vision, they had a, a real sense of uh, what uh, good urban design was. And I think that, that uh, good urban design in their, by their definition was design that, that honored and enriched the street that you walk past a McKinney White building uh, on the street and you really feel as though, uh, yes, the person who built it was rich and uh, what goes on on the other side of that front door is his business and not your business, but he is giving you something or she is giving you something back as a person walking on the street. You have this real gift 
that has enriched the street. And I think that this is something that the partners believed uh, New York architecture should do. In fact, any the, architecture should do. Isn't the Players Club in Manhattan an example of that, getting something from the street? Absolutely. You know, it's so interesting. The, um, the Players Club and in a couple of buildings, uh, Stanford White was a big proponent of the concept of de-stooping uh, a brownstone, which is now considered to be a you know, terrible sin. But what Stanford White would do, would he'd, he'd take the stoop off these brownstones and he'd move the front door down to the lower level, uh, which meant that you could go in at the lower level, you could deal with the waiting room, the coat room, the bathroom, the, all those other things that you have to deal with when you walk into a house. Then you would go up the stairs and you would come onto the piano nobile, the main floor, and have these wonderful spaces uh, with great high ceilings. And but, but what he would do would be in exchange for removing the stoop, he would create something that was this gift back to the city. So that at the Players Club, you have that extraordinary porch, uh, which is uh, just, you know, it's great to look at. It's great to be up in and looking down uh, at people walking by and looking at Gramercy Parks. That there was a real sense that, that he was taking something away, but he was giving something back that was much, much greater. What would you say were among his most challenging projects? Probably uh, work for difficult clients. I mean, I don't think that, uh, uh, I, I don't know enough to know that if he ever was completely stumped by any challenge but, uh, or any particular project, but I do know that he worked with some very, very difficult clients. And I think the, the clients who were more difficult, probably had more money and less imagination were probably uh, hard for him because he, you know, an architect needs uh, to feel as though the client is really on his side. And I think that there are some projects where that wasn't the case. Were there white protégés or at least white wannabes that followed him? I don't think so. I think that, that what happened when White died, I mean, in a sense, the timing of his death was, uh, was a coincidence in that uh, the taste for his kind of architecture, this very uh, enriched, elaborately detailed, gilded, uh, sort of voluptuous uh, architecture, um, that started to fade. And if you look at the classical architecture of the 20s, uh, it is in general much more, uh, much more refined, uh, much uh, more subdued uh, and much less fun. You yourself are an architect. How much has your great-grandfather influenced your own work? I'd say not at all. <laughs> that is a, that is a, uh, uh, that would be a loser's game. I mean, for one thing, uh, I don't think there are too many clients who want that. And if they did want it, they wouldn't call me. Um, I've, uh, my, my work, I think if you uh, think about the Fordham campus, I think that Best example of my work is what I did to the uh, Duane Library up at Fordham, uh, where I de-stooped the Duane Library. So in a sense, I am the, uh, the heir to Stanford White's approach. I took off this uh, porch and steps that brought you up to the second floor of Duane Library, and I brought you in downstairs. And uh, then I added those stair towers in the back, for those of you who know it, uh, that are sort of glass and stone and, uh, and metal. Uh, and it uh, just brought Duane Library back to life. I mean, I'm very proud of that project, and uh, I think they represent you know, me as an architect. As a Fordham alum and someone who's worked on the university campus now at Rose Hill for 
20 years, I am very impressed with that project. So great work there, Sam. Thank you very much. No, I'm really, I'm proud of it too. Now, you are a family of architects. You're not the only architect in the White family. But I think that I haven't counted. I mean, there might be five or seven of us at this point who are architects. Uh, not only in my generation, there are, uh, there are three other architects and a landscape architect. And then my, in my children's generation, I think there are at least two and maybe five, four or five uh, who are architects. So it does, uh, does seem to be something that people in the family seem to be comfortable going into. What is hands down your absolute favorite work by Stanford White? In terms of houses, uh, the, uh, I would say uh, the Venetian room at the Whitney house is my favorite residential design. I mean, I think it is just a work of complete brilliance. Uh, and then in terms of uh, his monuments, uh, the Washington Memorial Arch at Washington Square is, I think, one of the few buildings that at street level uh, is absolutely indispensable to the life of New York City. I mean, it is the, it is the structure that, that just defines an entire area. Sam White, thank you so much for your time. You're entirely welcome. Thank you very much. Once again, the book is Stanford White in detail. The author is Samuel G. White, Stanford White's great-grandson. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. Our producer is Maddie Bristow. Our music is courtesy of bensound.com. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.